Thanks for listening to the Voice Church Podcast. We are a new, life-giving, multi-ethnic church located in Orange County, California. We meet every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. in Tustin. For more information, check out our social media or our website at www.voice.church. And now, let's tune in to this week's message. You know, as we call it 30-second question, we always give you guys like a, like a minute or two. And uh, hopefully we cut you guys off so you're like, you know what, let's grab lunch together afterwards. Grab, grab, grab coffee together. Or you may find someone you're going, I, they're kind of weird. I don't want to hang out with them, which is, you know, that's, that's helpful too. Um, anyways, hey, welcome to church. Uh, if you are, it's your first time here, welcome. If you're an OG, been here since we launched a few years ago, welcome back. Uh, we haven't seen you since the new year launched. Happy new year. Uh, so question, the question of the day was, uh, how many of you guys have a new year's resolution? Can you raise your hand if you have a new year's resolution? My hand's up. Oh, you guys, some of you guys too. Some of you guys are like, talk, I don't do New Year's resolutions because that's hokey, but I do have a vision board for this year. <laughs> or I do have like, I do have goals for this year. It's the same thing, man. It's the same thing. So I looked it up online. I was curious, not to be like Debbie Downer here, but do you know uh, the stats of uh, what percentage of people keep their New Year's resolutions for the entire 12 months, you know, years, 12 months, the entire year? Do you know what, what percentage is? One percent. And I don't even know if they rounded up on that. One percent. So I'm with you. Prayer teams will be here after service. If we can support you in any way, join a small group, get some accountability. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, I have resolutions as well. Uh, I mean, I have a vision board. Just kidding. Okay. Um, hey, today I want to challenge you guys in the middle of creating New Year's resolutions and that sort of thing. Well, like, I guess a side note, if you're new and you're not, you're not familiar, my name is Taka. Um, if you're not new, my name is also Taka. But the... Uh, uh, I tend to talk pretty fast. So if you're wondering, like, is this, is this guy going to talk this fast this whole time? Yeah, for sure. So I'm on my third coffee. So we're, we're, we're humming. We're doing good. So um, I want to challenge you guys today in the middle of creating your news resolutions or habits or whatever you're doing this year, your vision for the year, um, to create another resolution or to make this your primary resolution, what we're talking about today. And this one habit, I really believe this. I know it's kind of the pastor thing to say, but the one thing I really think we're going to talk about today has an ability to impact your life like no other resolutions can. And it's just this, and you put it on the screen. It's consistent time in God's presence. Consistent time in God's presence. Because here's the thing, workouts are good, and you should work out, right? Uh, Yeah, yeah, I'm not, not going to say, <laughs> we, you should work out, right? Uh, reading is good. You should read. Getting quality sleep is good. Saving for retirement is good. Date nights with your spouse is good. Having a proper work-life balance, all those things are good. And a million other things, those are all really good. And you should do them. And the Bible talks about them. And we talk about them. And you, you should do them. But if you do all those things and miss out on spending consistent quality time in the presence of God on a regular basis, they're hollow. It's like getting the best seat on the, on the Titanic, right? Not something to brag about, right? So um, we talked about this a while ago, but I want to highlight it again. It's, 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 it's important for what we're going to talk about this year and kind of in our faith too. At the beginning of the Bible, if you guys are familiar with the Bible, the first book is... Genesis, yeah. I think for most of our Bibles, the first book is Genesis. And in Genesis, the beginning of Genesis starts with a creation account, right? In the beginning, God what? Created, yeah. Good job, class. So um, what it talks about is not 
meant to be the how of creation. It's never meant to be the mechanics. I think some Christians get their undies and bunnies because we try to make Genesis be, that's a biblical term, undies and bunnies. And we, we try to make Genesis a, a scientific textbook. Right? Genesis will never be taught in AP bio. It just won't, right? It's not about the how. It's not about the mechanics. It's about the who and why. Who created and why did they create? It's about the big questions in life. The ones we really care about. The soul questions. So we're going to read a few passages to kind of get a bearing for why they wrote what they wrote. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, good place to start. It says this, Then God said, Let the land sprout with vegetation every sort of seed-bearing plant. And all the potheads said, amen, right? So, um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> You're like, is it okay to laugh at that? It, it is okay, it's okay, because uh, they do say amen. All right, so, but God spoke to the land and said, land produce land stuff, right? Vegetation and like grow stuff like cilantro and you know, all this, some of you guys are like, I'm gonna need to leave the church right now, that's okay. Uh, but let, let the lamp, why? Because if you take the plant out of the ground, you take a orange tree and you suspend it in the air, that's not its source. It's meant to be in the ground. You put it in the air, it's going to die. Eventually, it'll die, right? Because when God created, he spoke to the source to create the thing. Let's continue on. Verse 20, it says, then God said, let the waters swarm with fish, another life. So God spoke to the source of fish to create the thing. Why is that important? You take a fish, go get a cod, and you take them and you, if I just was like really messed up and I just put like a salmon on the stage and it's just flopping around, right? It'll eventually die. Why? Because it's not meant to be here, right? It's meant to be on a sushi roll. Just kidding. It's it's not meant to be here. It's meant to be in the water. Why? Because the water is its source, right? Now, continue on. It says, let, let God, oh, then God said in verse 24, he says, let the earth produce every sort of animal. Continues. The same pattern is, is continuing here. Let the earth produce every sort of animal. Same thing in the converse. If we take a cow and we put it in the ocean, it's not going to thrive, right? It's going to go bleep and bye-bye cow, Right? Why? Because the ocean is not its source. Why is this important? Because in the next verse, God says this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. So God, triune God, three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? It's the mystery of of the Trinity. He says, let us create man in our image to be like us. He spoke to the source to create the thing. This is why the presence of God is so important because it's our source. We can try to live off of just stuff we can get in this earth. We can just, the stuff that we can get on this side of eternity, stuff that we can get on from this world. And they're not bad things. But we think that the stuff is our source. If I just got one more promotion, if I bought one more thing, if I got one more relationship, it doesn't connect right? And every time we drop off a donation to Goodwill, and every time we have a garage sale, and every time that our attics are full of stuff that is evidence of that fact, right? It doesn't connect at the soul level. Good things, bad gods, right? So it's not our source. And then the rest of scripture is all about the people of God and the presence of God. 
the people of God and the presence of God. So, in, you know, sin takes us away from God's presence, right? So we see that with Adam and Eve, it's the same way with us. We say this all the time, that sin doesn't change the way God loves you, but it sure changes the way you love God, right? And you know this. Some of you guys had a hard time worshiping today. Why? Because there's, there's sin, there's regret, there's skeletons in the closet, there's things that you need to confess to God that's creating a barrier between you and God. And you feel it, right? You know that firsthand, so sin separates, but then God continues to rescue, continues to protect, provide for his people. In the Old Testament, we see that he led his people by a pillar of cloud during the day, a pillar of fire at night in the wilderness. He would meet with his people in like tents and tabernacles and temples, right? And then Jesus came in the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus came in the flesh. That's what we just celebrated in Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. And that was such a huge deal because now we see God like us, with us among us, walking beside us. That was a huge deal. And then Jesus says, hey, I need to go and it's better that I go. What's the, the trippy thing is he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll stick closer than a brother. And then he leaves, right? Which is the trippy thing. But he says, it's good that I go because the Holy Spirit is gonna come who's not confined by space in the same way that Jesus in the flesh was. And so we see something when Jesus dies on the cross with what we see in scripture is the veil was torn in two. If you don't know what that means, you know, not to like get on a rabbit trail, but there was a veil that, tore, that, that separated the Holy of Holies, kind of where the presence of God, where the Ark of the Covenant, where all that was. And only a few select Levites could go into the Holy of Holies. And then there was a veil that separated from everybody else, commoners like you and me, right? Uh, we couldn't go in there, but we can only talk to God through a priest, and so when the veil was torn, then the verbiage started to change in scripture. People started saying things like, you are the temple. The temple isn't on the hill over there. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That the spirit of God lives in every single one of you. That there's power when we're gathered here together, but the spirit of God doesn't stay here when we all leave. That the presence of the spirit of God is with us in your car, on your bike ride, in your morning, when you get your morning coffee when you're like stressing out because you're about to give a big presentation at work, in those moments, God is there too, if we recognize him, all right? So God's spirit lives in each and every one of us. And then the Bible ends. The, the last book of the Bible is what? Revelation. And it ends with this. It says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I'm coming soon, which is Jesus. And then we say back, amen, come Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. And they lived happily forever. And I ended that part. But essentially it's, we live in God's presence forever. Starts with presence it ends with presence. There's a Franciscan priest named Richard Rohr, and he puts it this way. He says, the only consistent pattern I can find is that all the books of the Bible seem to agree that somehow God is with us and we are not alone. That all the, Bi the books of the Bible agree on this one thing, that God is with us somehow. We don't understand, it's a mystery. But God is with us somehow. The spirit of God is here. I can't explain it. I can't, I don't have like a, uh, you know, like a ghostbuster detector to go, oh, the spirit of God is actually more concentrated. But somehow the spirit of God is with us. I don't know how it works, but he's here. And he lives with, and we are not alone. So one of the big ideas of the, of the Bible is this one word, presence, presence. Not a theology. You guys know what the omnis are? So like omnipresent, omnipowerful, omniscient. 
should be omni, omniscient, uh, but God is omnipowerful. He, he can do all things. God is omniscient. He knows all things. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. So this is more than just a theology of omnipresence because theology and doctrine are up here. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about down here. This is a recognition and awareness of the presence of God. This is a recognition and awareness that the spirit of God is with you in your car. Not something we just say amen to, but you know, I don't know about you, but there's a few sanctuaries in my life. The car is one of them, right? Where I can be honest. I can yell. I can sing. I can try to rap along to my favorite songs that no one will ever hear, right? It's a special place with me and God, right? It's, 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 a, it's a sanctuary, right? And you know this, and you know the moments where you're like, you're going crazy, you just need to get away somewhere. Sometimes the best sanctuary is your car. You realize that the spirit of God is there with you in your car. And this is what this is. This is the idea of presence is this idea, this recognition that God, I recognize that you are here. I recognize that you wanna engage with me. You wanna speak into what's going on, what's going on in my heart, you care. You care. This is living with an awareness of the presence of God and living with a reliance on the presence of God. And the more we take time to sit in the presence of God is when things actually change in our lives. So many times we think we can educate ourselves into behavior change. How's that worked out for you? It never is, it's never an education problem, right? Like the reason why you may not be in the, in the best shape of your life is not because you don't understand that push-ups are good. It's not an education problem. It's not like you're like, Taco, wait, wait, salads are better for me than calzones? Yes, it's not an education problem, right? There's a heart problem. And really, just like when we talk to people about money or food uh, you know, issues, it's not a education problem. It's a behavior problem. And really it's a heart problem. Spending is a heart problem, right? So when we spend time in the presence of God, here's a few things and we're gonna breeze through these because don't have, we can camp on this like a sermon series in itself, but pride becomes humility, when you spend time in the presence of God, it's not that God's like, I'm gonna teach you about pride and humility. When you spend time in the presence of God and you really soak and you think about how great he is, how little we are, you can't be arrogant. If I was sitting next to Mike Tyson, I'm not gonna to be too cocky. You know what I mean? If I was like trying to lift weights and I'm thinking I'm doing pretty good so I'm lifting this or that and then Terry Crews starts <laughs> bouncing his pecs next to me, you know what I mean? I'm not gonna be too arrogant. Why? Don't need to give me a lesson on humility. Time in Terry's presence will make me humble, right? The more you spend time in the presence of God, there should be humility. Those that spend the most time in church, I don't know why this is. It's it's too often that the people who have been living for God the longest seem to be some of the most arrogant people I've ever met. I think they've been educated far beyond their level of obedience. They've been educated far beyond their level of presence, sitting in God's presence, right? Knowledge puffs up, right? So pride becomes humility. I really got to breathe through this. Anxiety becomes peace. The things that make you anxious because you're trying to control everything and you don't feel like you're enough because you're not enough. You can't control everything. You never can control much of anything. You can barely control yourselves, right? I can barely control myself, let alone anybody else let alone the economy or the weather or retirement or people or whatever. Like, I can't control all that. And then we're exposed to what's happening half around the world. You definitely can't control that. And so there's anxiety when you realize that, man, I can barely control everything, but I know the one who can. 
anchored to that. There's peace that comes. Self-centeredness becomes God-centeredness in the same way that pride becomes humility. We tend to think from the minute we're born, we think the world revolves around us because for those of you guys have little kids, all of us was little kids at one point, um, were little kids. <laughs> the world did revolve around you, right? You pooped, someone else cleaned it up. Like they, they fed you, they did everything. They, they canceled work just, just to take care of you, right? It, but then at some point we need to mature and realize it's not about us. And then you spend time in God's presence, you're going, it's really not about us. It's not about us and we're not even the center of our solar system and we're not the center of the galaxy and the galaxy is, our galaxy is not the center of the universe and we are not the center of it. It's like, it's all about God. It's all about God. Materialism becomes contentment, right? Try, trying to find hope and anchor and purpose in materialism. More time you spend in God's presence, you realize I'm good. I have so much to be grateful for that the blessings aren't out there. The blessings, I'm tripping over blessings in my life. It may not look like the person next to me, but I am so blessed. Contentment. Paul talks about how the fact that godliness with contentment is great gain. Okay, I keep going. Anger becomes forgiveness. When you get ticked off at someone else because they're not doing the thing and why didn't they just do this or why did, because if they just had their crap together, then they would, but then you realize that you're a mess up. When you gotta realize that people gotta put up with you, you gotta realize that, that all the promises you made to God, God knows you're not gonna keep some of them and he still loves you and spends time with you and forgives you and is patient with you. We want judgment. We want God's wrath for everybody else. We want God's grace for ourselves, Right? We want them to be judged for their actions, but God, I want to be judged for my intentions, right? All of a sudden we see that the anger slowly becomes softened into forgiveness. Well, man, I deserve forgiveness, right? Then maybe they do too. Maybe they didn't mean to do that. Maybe they didn't mean to say that or come across that way. Maybe they were just caught up in something just like I have been so many times. And we realize maybe they need forgiveness too. That's comes from, that doesn't come from a book you read. That comes from time in God's presence. A hurried heart becomes full engagement. The more time you spend in God's presence, the more you realize that, man, eternity is long, but this side of eternity is very short. I don't want to rush to the next thing, to the next thing, to the next thing, and realize that I missed everything. And you realize, the, and you take time to really soak in that constantly. You realize that, man, just be here, be here. The future will always get here. It's got this, the future has this crazy way of becoming the present. It'll get here every time. So be here. It'll catch up to you. Be here, right? A few things more, fear-driven hoarding becomes mission-fueled generosity. When you, get, when you realize that the greatness of God and how short our time is here, we don't have to fear anymore. We don't have to hoard anymore because the economy is always going to do wonky things. The Fed is always going to do wonky things. The politicians are always going to be fear-mongering. News today is all spread around fear, not hope. So you don't have to hoard, but when you have mission-fueled generosity, you know, hate becomes compassion. Last one, apathy becomes purpose. And it goes on and on and on. And this doesn't come from a book or a sermon, which is kind of hard for me. It doesn't come from a sermon. It comes from time in the presence of God. Paul talks about this, this idea in his letter to the church in Rome. And Rome is a city whose culture is not Christian, right? Now we see it as like Pope this or that and the church, but it wasn't that way when they planted the church there. It was a city in many ways that were anti-Christian, 
So when the people were coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and giving their lives to him and dedicating their lives to him, they didn't grow up Christian. Their parents weren't Christian. Their friends weren't Christian. Their educations weren't weren't Christian. They didn't have any Christian habits. They had a lot of momentum in in a direction away from Jesus, right? And yet God was calling them to live a different way. So they were thinking, how do we change our behavior? Is it an education thing? Is it is a way that we can you know, do things differently in our, our schooling programs so we can live differently? And Paul goes, no, it's not about that at all. And he says this in Romans chapter 12, verse two. He says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. In other words, the way they do things is not the way you do things. And that is important for us today too. The way that culture does things, you don't win culture by yelling at them. Jesus never got upset with people that never claimed to follow him, that they acted like they didn't follow him. Jesus got upset with people who claimed to follow him but didn't live like it was true, right? So you don't change culture by yelling at, oh, this company is doing this and this media company and this. Yeah, what? They're, living, they're doing their business as if profit was their goal? crazy. Why don't we act as if following Jesus is our goal? Let's take that seriously and work on that. So he says, hey, don't copy the behavior and customs of the world. They're going to do what they do. Don't even worry about it. You worry about you. He says, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know what God's will is for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. What Paul is saying is if you want to live differently, you have to think differently. That if you try to create new behavior, force yourself, or you know this, if if you were like, I'm going to forgive someone, or I'm going to donate to this charity, or I'm going to you know, wake up at four in the morning and go for a run or pray, pray or whatever the thing is, you're trying to create new behavior, but if you haven't changed the way you think, it's like a rubber band. That's just the more you pull away, the more tension it gets and it snaps back. It has to start with your heart, your, what's really going on. We say change the way you're thinking, we, it's, it's heart. It's heart. It's not a cognitive thing. It's a heart issue. So what does this have to do with presence? What in the world does this have to do with presence? Because presence is a recognition that God wants to do life with you. And the worst thing you can do is try to do it on your own. So here's how it practically looks. You guys have coffee in the morning or tea or you hydrate in some way in the morning, right? I don't know what your routine is. Here's my normal routine if I'm doing it wrong, which I do it more often than I'd like to admit. I'm having my morning coffee uh, and I'm thinking I'm already overwhelmed, right? Because I'm like, I have so much to do today. I don't have enough time. I haven't even done my first thing for the day and I'm already overwhelmed because there's not enough time. There's, and I'm just stressed, right? So I'll have a moment of clarity. Okay, put a to-do list. I love to-do list. Sometimes I'll create to-do list because I'm right about to like, like say I'm right about to do dishes. I'll put do dishes on my to-do list just so I can cross it off in 30 seconds. You ever, you guys like that? Okay, so, so I create my to-do list. Stay focused, Taka. You know, my dad gave me a day timer uh, when I was in eighth grade with a VHS tape showing me how to use it. So I'm going back to old stuff. <laughs> yeah, pray for me. Uh, so, and I'm going through like, okay, this is how I do things. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is have your morning coffee and before you pick up your phone, most of us, a lot of us, our first response is to pick up our phone. Before you pick up your phone, you're gonna live, you're gonna survive. You can breathe without being touching your phone. It's fine. And say, God, I give this day to you. I give this day to you. I don't know what's gonna happen, but you do. I give it to you. 
Here's some things that are at the top of my heart right now. Here's the things that are bothering me. Here's the things that are exciting me. Here's the things that, I'm, that are reoccurring thoughts that I don't know if they're true, but I feel like a failure. I feel like an imposter. I feel like I'm blowing it in these areas. I'm really excited about these things though. Is that something you want me to pursue? And just put it all, sync up, sync up. And then maybe you give it 30 seconds to a minute. This is a muscle you have to build, okay? Because when you first start praying, you'll pray for a minute and be like, I just prayed for every need in the world. I have nothing else to pray for. And the more you build this habit, the more you'll get to a point and you're like, this doesn't make sense. It will. You'll pray for 10, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, and be like, wow, that time flew by, right? So you just sync up with God. And then if you want to go to like the next level, kind of JV level, then you go, okay, God, I'm going to give you a two minutes. Is there anything? You set a timer. Is there anything that you want to speak to me? And let God guide your heart. Some things you'll see kind of the dial turned down. Some pain, it's not like it goes away, but it's almost like God desaturates. It takes the color out of it. It's less, it kind of fades to the background, right? And you'll start to care about other things. And I think that's God kind of resyncing your heart. This is what it means to, to think differently, to live differently before you even start your day. And then you do this throughout the day when you're driving to a meeting, when you're putting a project together, when you're about to walk into a tough conversation with your kid or your spouse or a friend, maybe when you're going to bed and that's when, I don't know about you, that's when my thoughts all swirl and I'm thinking about everything from I need to get eggs and to like, what does my life become? And like everything in between, you know? And all those moments, God, I invite you into this moment. Is there anything you want to speak to me? Is there anything that's out of alignment in my heart? Is there anything that you want me to tweak? God wants to be invited to those conversations. He's going to guide you into his way of living. And what he's doing is he's slowly changing not just what you do. He's changing why you do what you do. Does that make sense? Sean Nepp said it. He wrote a bunch of great books, but one of the things, uh, a book I just read from his, he, he says spirituality is learning to pay attention to the presence of God in everything. Learning to pay attention to the presence of God in everything. And this is not like you start worshiping the tree in your yard. I'm not talking about that, okay? But this is about the fact that, that God is moving in everything if you notice. And you guys ever gone on a missions trip? Right? And it's so crazy on mission trips. I've led, I've led a lot of them throughout the years. And the same thing happens every time. People are like, Man, God created this divine appointment, right? This, had this conversation with this person. It was amazing. Or man, God spoke to me in my quiet time because we have mandatory quiet times on mission trips. And it's like, God spoke to me in my quiet time this morning and the way this bird landed on the tree, I felt like God was saying this to me. Do you know what that was? You just created space. There wasn't something magical about being in that location. It was the fact that the, for the first time in a long time, you just created consistent space for God to move. I think God wants to speak to you all the time if we just are aware of it. And the hard part is I think I love my phone and it's the best and the worst thing in my life. Because there's so many times of boredom. Like I feel like when our kids were little, they're like their worst thing ever that could happen to them is being bored. Like it was, it was, a, it was a social justice crime <laughs> for them to be bored. It's like, I'm so bored right now. Cool. Like when I was your age, I played with wooden blocks. All right. So like, <laughs> I feel like I was born in the 1400s. Okay. 
They just invented the wheel. It was awesome. Uh, anyway, so, but some of the best moments in your life will be when you're bored. The hard part is before we would let our mind wander and think and be creative and dream. Now, if you're in, in the Costco line for more than 12 seconds, our phone goes out and we're looking for the dopamine hit. We've lost the art of creating space for God. So let me uh, kind of, and we're going to go through Psalm 23 uh, here. We're going to fly through it um, and kind of bring this point home. So I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to go step by step through it. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He, re- he lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right past, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, or as Coolio said, the walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will not be afraid for you are beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. So let's step through it real quick. First, first line, the Lord's my shepherd. I have all that I need. Or you may have heard it said, um, I shall not want. Right? It's not like you're not allowed to want. It's saying, I don't need anything. I'm good. This is written by David, who was a shepherd and is now a king when he writes this. What he's saying is, man, when I was a shepherd, my sheep didn't have to worry about anything. They didn't want for anything. They weren't getting together going, okay, guys, we got we to ration out our food. We didn't figure out who's on guard duty today, right? They didn't have, they didn't, there weren't any, any, any sheep whittling weapons to protect themselves from wild animals. They, they, they knew they had no care in the world as long as they stayed close to the shepherd. They'd have shelter, they'd have food, they'd have protection. The only danger happened when they went off on their own. All right, next verse, or next line, he says, Let, he lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. Other translations, what I memorized it originally was he makes me lie down in green pastures, right? Which, which really spoke to me because a lot of times God needs to make me rest. Rest is the hardest thing I've had to learn. Right? So he makes me slow down. And what this tells me is David is saying, look, man, this good shepherd tells me that the best parts in life, the best stuff of life is found when there's not hurry, when there's not rushing. I want you to think this practically. I've never heard someone say, I love hanging out with so-and-so. We have the best conversations. They are always in a hurry. They are always super rushed and anxious. I love hanging out with them. Right? Never do. The thing about the people you love spending time with, maybe your grandpa or your, you know, your old coach, they always make, it's like, like do you do stuff? Oh, do, you have, do you have a job? They were just always present, right? This is what David's saying. is like, hey, he, just chill for a second. Relationships are always built outside of hurry, outside of rushing. What David is saying is, you know, the shepherd tells me that I can be human. That it's not go, 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 go all the time. And when I rest, he renews my strength. For some of us, it's been a long time since our strength was renewed. We wake up just as tired as we, we went to sleep. And it's like rinse and repeat, let's do it over again. Some of you guys, you've gone through hell this season. You've gone through loss this season. And you need God to say, stop. Stop. Renew your soul. You're running on fumes. You're running on empty. Yeah, yeah, I know you have stuff you gotta do. 
When you die, the world will keep spinning. When you die, the business, the thing you lead, the organization, they'll all keep moving on. They'll take a brief blip to go to your funeral and eat some potato salad, and then they're going to go on. Right? So live as if that is true. Stop. The world doesn't revolve around you. You are not holding the earth together. Renew your soul. Lie down. Chill. Some of us need to go there. Some of us, we need the opposite because you're like, you do that all the time. Okay, so that's, that's not maybe you. So rest, he says, renew my, next line. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. So presence in, having, being in the presence of the shepherd, he directs me as long as I'm watching for his guidance, right? He can't guide me if I'm ignoring him. He can't guide me if I'm doing life on my own. I can't like, like I have, you know, one of the guys that goes to the church, he's like personal trainer and, but I can't be like, oh man, he kind of stinks as my personal trainer. And he'd be like, talk, you haven't been in the gym in a month. Like, yeah, but you kind of suck as my personal trainer. You're not really guiding me much. I know I'm not ever around you, but you're really not helping me, right? But so many of us do that with God. I don't feel God, God guiding me. He's not helping me. I don't feel his provision or direction. When would he, right? You watch online once a month. You know what I mean? It's like, when would, you have no daily habits. If you only ate once a month, you'd probably be dead. You want to be thriving, you know? So when we listen to God, his direction, we find success, it shows others that this is the best way to live. This is why it says that he bring, it brings honor to his name. Why? When we live correctly and we flourish, we now have the humility to say it's God, not me. And everyone that knows this was like, obviously it's not you, it has to be God, Right? A lot of times, Christians can make dumb decisions financially, can make dumb decisions relationally, can make dumb leadership decisions, and it makes God look stupid. It brings dishonor to his name. There's a lot of people, I'm sure we all know, some of you guys are people like this, that the reason why they're not serving Jesus is because of the behavior of Christians that have brought dishonor to God's name and, the, and they think God is like that because you're like that. They think God's a bigot because you're a bigot. They think God's arrogant because you're arrogant. They think God's unloving because you're acting unloving. But if they just were to encounter God, they see that he's for the opposite of what you, the way you're acting. And the big question is, why are you acting like that? And it probably is because you're not, being, you're not spending any time in God's presence. So next, next line, that's a whole other sermon. Even when I walk through the, the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Again, you may have heard it said, uh, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? <laughs> Sorry, all I hear is Coolio. Uh, <laughs> I mean, a Christian man. So even though I walk the valley of shadow of death, even though I walk in the place where I'm at death's door, I will not be afraid. It's like, la, 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 la. Like I ref- no, no, it's not saying you don't recognize that the, that the, the enemy's there. It's not recognizing that the pain, it's not, it's not saying, it's not faith to say, oh, I'm not sick. You're sick right now, but I do believe God can heal you. But it's not anti-faith to say that you're sick. It's not anti-faith to say that you're having a hard time in your relationship right now. It's not anti-faith to say that you made some dumb decisions financially. It's not anti-faith to say you have a sin pattern that is gonna ruin your life. That's not anti-faith. It's saying that even though you're at death's door, you don't have to fear that because God is with you. And he's trying to lead you to a different way if you listen. You can't solve every problem. You can't fix everything in your life. You can't be everything that God needs you to be. Let God, let God's peace overwhelm the fear. 
he's got you, right? So you're not gonna be paralyzed by fear. You're like, I probably should be afraid, but I got Mike Tyson with me. So why should I be afraid, right? So in the next line, your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. A lot of times your rod and staff were disciplinary measures, but not in this context. It was actually saying, hey, the rod and staff are, are defense items that I know that people try to attack me because people will attack you. Not more than ever. You ever realize I, I, I got off Facebook. I'm still kind of on there, but I'm, I'm not, I don't ever go on. I didn't cancel my account or anything, but because I use Facebook Marketplace and like Facebook groups. Anyways, um, some of you guys are the same where you're like, I don't post anything, but I am in these like groups around whatever you're into. Um, but the reason why I got off of Facebook and it's not like you have to get off Facebook if you're spiritual, is because there was so much vitriol. Someone could, Van Gogh could post his painting process and there'd be all these people saying, you're an idiot and here's why. And it's like, why can't you just say, good job? That looks nice. Why does everything, I can post anything. This is a circle and draw a circle and people will argue with it. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? What is going on in your heart that you feel like you have to create wars everywhere? Why does every word that comes out of your mouth need to be a grenade? And can I just, can we talk in real life? So I feel like you'd be a coward in real life, right? And so I got off of that. This is like, look, are people gossiping about you? They probably are. Are people threatening your reputation? They, they probably are. And if you do anything significant in your life, they will. You may be excited about the promotion you got at the job. I guarantee there are people at your job that aren't excited that you got it. If you're in any sort of leadership position, people are talking behind your back, right? But what this is saying is, look, I don't have to defend myself, right? I need to act rightly. Not saying you can do whatever you want. God's got my back. Saying you follow God's guidance and because you keep your conscience clear before him. What it's saying is, hey, God will protect me and correct me but God will protect me. I don't need to go up there and respond to every hater. Let God work it out because he knows the truth. Next line, you prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. This is the same idea. If you were in this time, if you were hosting a banquet, you were not only responsible for the feeding of your guests, which makes sense, but you're also responsible for the protection of your guests, right? So here, the writer, in this case, David, understands that he would be vulnerable to his enemies anywhere else. But as long as he stays close to his host, he's going to be warm, fed, and protected, even though his enemy's like right there. He's protected. Next line. I think it's, yeah. It says, you honor me by anointing my head with oil. It's a few different, different takes on this. Uh, it is true that the host would rub oil, not like pour oil, but rub oil on their guest's uh, like forehead, typically, almost like an Ash Wednesday kind of deal. Um, but it was a sign of honor. It also smelled kind of nice and was soothing because it had spices in it. Oil all throughout scripture is symbolic of the presence of God. So that has to be in play here. I think as a shepherd, though, I think this is the most logical thing, what David is saying. As a shepherd, um, there were these flies that would, that would lay eggs on the head of the sheep, like in the fur uh, of, of the sheep. And then they would lay, the eggs would hatch with larva, right? It's kind of gross. Um, it's like Dr. Pimple Popper or something. And the, the larva would go into the ears and the nose and the eyes of these sheep and then like, become flies and hatch and all that kind of weird stuff going on. So it would drive the sheep crazy as it would you, but they don't have like fingies to try to get this stuff out or, you know, Kaiser to go to for sheep. So, so a lot of times these sheep would just go bananas and they would just like bang their head against the ground or the rocks to try to 
shake these things out and it would hurt them, obviously. And the shepherds found out that when you pour oil on the, shepherd, on the sheep's head, somehow about it, they can't lay the eggs in there. I think what a lot of theologians, I kept on reading this, this kept coming up over and over again, is that the theologians believe that David is talking about how the presence of God protects people's minds. That this kind of the, the stinking thinking, the, the bad mind games, the reoccurring thoughts, the imposter syndrome, the lies about identity and who you are and you're a failure and you can't do this and you'll always be this and everyone hates you and you're alone and all those things that you know logically aren't true, but they still land in your heart somehow. Like, you know, if you wrote them out or like, you know what you would tell you if your friend was saying the things you were saying, but they still land for some reason, right? It still affects you for some reason. And he's saying, when you spend time in the presence of God, they just aren't able, they still fly over your head, but they aren't able to lay eggs in your, in your hair, right? And the last line, it says, my cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I'll live in the house of the Lord forever. And this is pretty self-explanatory. It's talking about how our hearts and our lives, we spend time in God's presence. We recognize and kind of tune our eyes and our hearts, almost like a radio frequency. When we tune our hearts and our eyes to consistently spend time in God's presence throughout the day, constantly, just checking in with God throughout the day, right? Um, that we will, our hearts will be overflowing with the goodness and the love of God. And it ends in a similar way as Revelations, that at the end of all scripture, it says that we will live in God's presence. We'll live in the house of the Lord forever. And as we think about this Psalm, we see God doing so many things, don't we? We see God guiding and protecting and loving and providing and coaching and feeding and comforting. But again, I wanna reiterate, all this stuff happens only if the writer stays in his presence. That's it. None of these things could happen if he wandered off on his own. Recently, I came across uh, kind of the anti-Psalm 23. And this, this, this writer, anonymous writer, said, this is what I think it would look like if God wasn't there. And Psalm 23 is rewritten. It says this, uh, the Lord is not my shepherd. I am in want. Rest evades me. I cannot resist the tyranny of the urgent. My energy is sapped. I am without direction on some aimless path, bringing nothing but dishonor to myself and those around me. Especially when I run through the dark valley of death, I am terror-filled, for I am alone. Your absence leaves me barren and inconsolable. I am famished and surrounded by vultures. I am an unwelcome burr in your saddle, dust kicked from a shoe. My cup is empty. My love, your love keeps missing me. Day after day, I will live alone in an empty apartment forever. That's the difference the presence of God makes. And some of you guys are like, Taka, that's kind of how I feel right now. Okay, look, look, maybe you don't feel God's guidance or his protection or his love or his, or his comfort. Can I challenge you? And this may be like a little, can I just be a good friend right now? If you don't feel like God's guidance, protection, love, provision is in your life right now, it wasn't God that walked away from you. Could it be that you wandered? Jesus would tell this story in Luke 15 about a guy who, a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one walked away and he was like, ah, oh, forget it, I saw 99. That's not what he did. He left the 99 to go after, he pursued the sheep because he cares about that one too. He didn't get mad at the sheep, he cared for it, carried it, right? God wants to be close to you. Like I said before, our one word focus this year is presence. And our challenge this year, we're gonna talk about it over and over and over again this year, 
is that we as a church family, as individuals, that we would spend consistent time in God's presence, recognizing that God wants to meet us throughout the day in the cool moments like prayer and worship nights or church, but also in the really mundane everyday moments is where God wants to interact with you. So a couple of main ways as we close. One, joining. Joining. What is God already doing in your life? What is God already doing in someone else's life? That person that you're like, man, I really hope they come to faith or I really hope they come to church or that, that coworker, I wonder what's going on with them. They've got to put them on your heart. You realize you don't have to save them. God's already working in their lives. So how could you join with God at your workplace, in your family, in your neighborhood? He's already at work. Where can you join him? And if you join God where he's working, you'll be in the presence of God. The second thing is inviting. Inviting, not inviting people to church, but inviting God into it. Where, where are you doing life intentionally or without intentionally inviting God? Where are pockets of your life that is like a God-free zone? How can you invite God into those spaces? Maybe there are areas of pain that you just want to, you're not ready to share with God for whatever reason. Or there may be areas of dreaming that when you think about when I, you know, when I plan for the year, when I plan my five-year goals, I never talk to God about it. Why is that? How do I invite God into those spaces? Maybe there's a pattern of behavior, like we talk about sin, where shame is keeping you isolated from him. Maybe there's a group of relationships in your life that you're like, oh, this is like my non-church friends and this is like a Jesus-free zone and they have no idea about your faith at all. What would it look like? Maybe, maybe God loves them too. And maybe God wants to work through you to impact them, not in a weird way. I'm not saying next time you go hang out with your friends, you're like, hey guys, turn or burn, okay? But maybe that God has, wants to work through you to impact them in a way that you know they need to hear. How could you invite God into those spaces? On our webpage, uh, there's a, a, a page for, you can just go from the main website and you'll you link to it. It's just, Voice.church4/presence, I think. And I'll walk through this, but then there's a few books that we'll keep it updated. There's a few books, if you're going, I don't even know where to start. There's a few books that'll really walk you through some of the basics of how to do this on a practical level. It's not as complicated as, as it may come to be, but it could change everything. This year, can we go through this year focused on the presence of God, saturated, soaked in the presence of God in every area of our lives? Or we can just do another year on your own, your call, your call. So let me pray uh, for us and then we'll uh, sing a couple songs together. God, we just thank you for being so good, so gracious, so kind. Uh, we don't wanna do life without you, God. We don't. And me included, so many times I do and we do. And we've, we've missed out on so much and we're just done with that. We're done with that. We need your guidance. We need your comfort. We need your protection. We need your provision. We wanna make an impact in this world for you. So help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We just stand to your feet. Let's sing this together. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's message at Voice Church. We hope it inspired you to live a life more faithfully for Jesus and to be a voice of hope for your community. We'd love for you to join us in person on a Sunday. And until then, we hope you have a beautiful week.